Welcome to our weekly three-minute therapy podcast. We're here almost every week to discuss issues related to REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. And just to remind you, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy was a groundbreaking form of psychotherapy devised by Albert Ellis many years ago and revolutionized the way psychotherapy has been done. Many years ago, meaning the 1950s. Yes, yes. Thanks, Rick. And, uh, and the idea of rational emotive behavior therapy is that our emotions come from our thinking, not from situations. So if you're fired and you are depressed, you're not depressed because you are fired, you're depressed because of your thinking about it. And when you have emotional disturbance, thinking is in a particular form, that's in a form of demands. Must, should, supposed to's, have to's, demands that we escalate from our preferences. And we will say more about that in the interview. I'm here with my podcast partner and co-author, Mick Berry. Mick and I wrote the book Stage Fright, and I also wrote Three Minute Therapy, which you see above my left shoulder here. And uh, we, and it, which explains rational emotive behavior therapy. So uh, let's get started. And we have a guest today, Tarek Abdullah. Tarek. Tarek Abdullah, sorry. And uh, we uh, are discussing Tarek's idea that REBT may be a cult. Is that right? Is that uh, what you want to uh, talk about, Tarek? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, would you want to start, Tarek, by telling us how you're defining a cult? Sure. So I would define a cult in a more flexible way. Um, I would say that because it's such a serious uh, accusation or such a serious idea for something to be a cult, you have to appreciate all the nuances and gray areas. So, for example, um, if you're looking at, if you're thinking of a cult, uh, and let's take like the most severe form of cult, like the Heaven's Gate, where a huge number of people died and there was like a close-knit community where everybody was forced to live within a certain uh, confine of rules. By that very extreme definition, RBT wouldn't be considered a cult unless there are clusters or groups of people who practice RBT that do do that, um, if that was the case. But by that extreme definition, it wouldn't be called a cult. But with that said, there's still uh, certain things that make a cult a cult that go beyond that intense communal aspect. And part of it is the individual aspect of a person's psychology. And then part of it is the framework or the belief system that they're looking at the world through and whether or not that framework or belief system is flexible and can bend uh, to accommodate evidence and reason. So I'm going to start with the core ideas of RBT, when it was founded and how it may be progressed. Uh, so for example, when RBT was founded in the 1950s, um, that was before neuroscience, that was before 
all the research and psychology that has happened since then. That was uh, before also recent reevaluations of old psychological and religious traditions. So for example, um, there's been a lot new focus into like Ayurvedic medicine. There's been, there's been a lot of new focus into uh, a lot of new focus into let's say the Wim Hof method, uh, which is, you know, cold water tolerance and breath work to help with mental health and other things. Uh, and reevaluation of religious traditions, you could say, looking back at um, Christianity uh, with Jordan Peterson and how he kind of reevaluates biblical stories. And of course, there's examples like that for every religion through the lens of psychology. Uh, from all of these things, there hasn't really been a fundamental change in the belief system. The idea, for example, that all thoughts, all emotions come from thoughts, that hasn't budged with new evidence. And I think when you hold onto a belief that doesn't, and uh, you hold onto a belief without accommodating new evidence, without accommodating new reasoning, then I think that's dogmatic. And I think dogmatism is a major theme in a cult, and that starts. Uh, Tarek, sorry to interrupt, but uh, what's the new evidence that contradicts uh, that our emotions come from our thinking? Well, for example, if you look at um, research into PTSD, uh, research into, for example, uh, we know with neuroscience, the language centers of the brain during periods of extreme fear, they have less blood, less activity that's there. And because there's less activity in the area of the brain that has to deal with language, that sort of counters the idea that the language of our thoughts is the um, source of all our emotions. So for example- Tarek, Tar Tar it's my understanding that although there are specific areas in the brain that correlate to certain, uh, to behaviors and emotions and thinking, uh, it's not that, not that specific that one area could take over for another area. But uh, is, is it possible for you to uh, answer the question about why REBT is a cult without going into the physiology of the brain or these other things, or does it hinge on that? Yes, yes, I can do that. Um, I was sort of answering the question of how things have changed since the 1950s, but basically the core idea of why I view it as being on that spectrum is that uh, if you take the idea of everything comes down to must or preference, there's not really any hard evidence that that's true. But well, nothing, sort of, I'm, not, I'm starting to talk, but nothing in REBT says that everything comes down to must or preference. Uh, REBT, uh, first of all, is talking about our emotions and where our emotions come from. And also REBT says there are many influences on our emotions. There's genetic predispositions, there's any drugs we're on, there's our environment, culture, those kinds of things. So it's not that everything comes down to emotions, but that to a large extent, our emotions come from our thinking. Mick, did you wanna say anything yet? Well, yeah, actually, the thing is, you could say, Tarek, you can say these things have come about but I haven't been convinced by anything I've seen that it contradicts REBT. In fact, I would say I agree with you. If REBT is clinging to an idea and a contradiction comes up, I don't know if we have to call it a cult, but if REBT doesn't bend when there's evidence to the contrary, then it's simply bad science or bad reasoning or just 
a bad approach. However, I haven't myself seen anything that contradicts REBT. And in fact, many of the people, the things you cited, in particular, Jordan Peterson, I have noticed myself as being unbelievably cultish. So I would contend that I haven't seen anything here that contradicts what REBT says. If an idea is presented and won't bend, I agree. It's rotten, it's useless, it's stupid. But I don't see anything that contradicts REBT from the things that you've cited. Okay, so like to go back to, to kind of answer your point, to go back to what causes emotion. Me, uh, so I think maybe, yes, in terms of what causes uh, emotion, what causes our feelings, I, I think I was wrong to say it all comes down to musts. But when it comes down to what causes our emotional upsets, REBT does take the stance of, let's say that um, a person is had a very traumatic childhood where, let's say it was something extreme, like they were a victim of gang violence and they have PTSD from that, or they were abducted, you know, something extreme, um, and they were depressed about that. In REBT therapy, all that would go on is they would, they would say, um, the therapist would say, fundamentally, you're telling yourself you must not have been abducted, but you should try to switch that to a preference. And then that well, would- that, That's a very simplified version of that, but uh, does your criticism hinge on that? Because if it does, then uh, Mick and I can correct that. So yes, it does uh, hinge on that in a general sense, in the sense of if this is the fundamental way, and I know there's unconditional self-acceptance, I know there's unconditional life acceptance, but they all sort of stem from the same idea of you're putting demands on yourself and demands on yourself are the cause of all um, mental disturbance. Right. Yeah. So all disturbances. So not negative emotions, period. But when something starts to become a disorder, when something starts to become something you would go to therapy for to, to correct, then that would be the cause. And I'm saying that fundamentally, I don't see the evidence to support that. Uh, to know that's what's going on in the mind. And then to what we talked about, Mick, about um, what has happened since then to contradict that. The research that's been done on people with PTSD, for example, um, let's say the MDMA studies, they find that when people, um, people have had treatment resistant PTSD, so they've tried everything and nothing seems to work. Um, when they sit down with two therapists and they take the MDMA within a controlled environment, they have very high success rates. And often in those sessions, those people will sort of go at uh, any of the psychedelic therapy sessions, people will go throughout their life and sort of examine different patterns in their life and identify destructive patterns of behavior. So not necessarily muster preferences, but destructive patterns of behavior. And they'll sort of look at other people in their lives in a new emotional light. Also part of the thing with the MDMA therapy with PTSD is that people will, um, People will sit with the two therapists, one male, one female, and they'll get things off their chest that they aren't really able to get off. Um, and so these are often people that have been in war zones uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And in REBT, uh, it's, it's very much this idea that there might be this short-term pleasure in getting something off your chest, but it's not really gonna help you in the long-term. But we see that when people can do that in certain environments with PTSD, uh, when they can kind of go back throughout their life in a sort of autobiographical way and figure out uh, what happened, what the patterns were, when they can sort of view themselves as being lovable again, that those people that have 
had high resistance to being healed are able to be healed. Uh, that's an example of PTSD. Okay, now you're reminding me of something, World War One. Now also, world of psychology is very mixed up. There's no question about it. And there are always people that are trying to reinvent the wheel. And this idea of post-traumatic stress disorder as being a new catchphrase, it's nothing new. After World War One, the term was shell-shocked. And there was one, I don't remember his name, but there was one psychologist who found the cure for helping people with being shell-shocked long before REBT, he took them back to the battlefield in France. These were British soldiers that were incapable of functioning in society, just shaking and just out of their minds. And he took them back to the battlefield in France to show them the war was over, they were safe, and that was the cure. And that is straight up REBT, which is expose yourself to the thing that is bothering you, as long as you're not in physical danger, and realize that you can deal with it. You don't have to have it be any other way. It's straight up eliminating the must. Not everybody who comes out of Iraq and everybody who comes out of a war zone has PTSD. Certain people do. And hey, if this particular procedure works for them, cool. But I would argue what they're doing is finding a way to get at their demand that they're making that is incapacitating themselves. So um, to the point you made about shell shock and the progression of now we call it PTSD, is this really a new thing? Well, they used to call it shell shock. In science and in medicine, you sort of have to think about things, I think, like regardless of the term, you have to look at the substance before you look at the term. So when you're looking at the substance of what those people were going through, the symptoms and the way that they uh, acted in life were probably very similar to what we would call PTSD, if not identical in the sense of if you somebody who has like a stereotypical case of what we would call PTSD today, um, they might have recurring nightmares, constant flashbacks. Um, they are always in a sympathetic state. So just for people that don't know, and the autonomic nervous system, there is sympathetic and parasympathetic. Sympathetic has to do with your fight or flight response. So uh, when you your body wants to respond to a threat, your heart rate will go up, your breathing will quicken. Um, your body will shut down like gastrointestinal. Okay, all that's well and good. I'm interrupting here because I had a thought. Not everybody has PTSD. REBT says it's how you view it. If it was automatic, everybody would be responding the same, but we don't. People view it differently. Not everybody has PTSD that goes through a war zone. Not everybody became shell-shocked. True that not everybody becomes shell-shocked, but there's also a huge range of factors you have to consider. So if we're, it's kind of like the classic idea of, like, I remember I used to read a lot of big books and I would look at uh, one argument would be that um, kind of what you just mentioned, same event happens to a wide range of people, but they don't all have the same response. So it must be the must, it must be the thinking. But the thing is, you have to consider that there's a huge, and there's an endless range of factors that you have to sort of ask if they make the difference too. So, so for example, in the military, some people have extremely close bonds with people in their unit and some people are kind of the odd man out. Some people, uh, in terms of the actual event, um, sometimes an explosion can be so loud that it causes ear damage. Um, 
So you have to kind of look at the physical relationship. If it's a bigger guy in a situation where they're surrounded versus a smaller guy, there's literally a different balance of threat. The bigger guy might be less in threat than the smaller guy. Um, you have to also look at, for example, if a person has had, let's say, traumatic experiences throughout their life up until that point, and they're always sort of in this sympathetic state where they're always viewing things in terms of fight or flight, um, then they might be more aroused when this massive uh, threatening event happens. So you have these wide range of different factors, but then we're just saying there's this one factor. But the thing is- oh, I, I actually, Tarek, I had mentioned yeah. there are different factors and different influences. Uh, what we look at is the cognitive factor because that's as therapists, that's what we can help people change. And uh, the evidence is that when people change their thinking about something, then their emotions change too. Well, I'm going to take the, la the last word. Well, here. I, wanted to, I want to mention one thing here. I do, I do appreciate you coming on here, Tarek, because you're obviously outnumbered. So there's a certain amount of courage for you to come on board here. So thanks for coming on board. Hey, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks very much for joining us. And uh, I also want to thank our tech engineer, Chris Rossini, for making this all happen. And uh, I wanted to, uh, again, remind you, I'm Dr. Michael Edelstein. This is Mick Berry. We're here almost every week to discuss a subject related to REBT. And um, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, give us a like, give, comment below if you'd like to be a guest, mention that below or suggest subjects. Uh, you could volunteer to be a guest. We will cure you. Donate to Patreon to help support the podcast. Subscribe to 3-Minute Therapy Podcasts to stay on the rational side of life.